My guest today is Mike Foley, a retired Boston firefighter with 25 years of experience on the job. Mike is also the author of Busy as Hell and Busy as Hell 2, books that cover the history of the Boston Fire Department's war years between 1963 and 1983. In this episode, we dive into Mike's family legacy of four generations of Boston firefighters, from his grandfather, who was appointed in 1917, to his son, who is still serving to this day. Some highlights of the episode include the Foley's Marine Corps heritage, Mike's very first experience working a fire at 17 years old, some Boston-specific fire department history, a discussion about bunker gear and cancer, and perhaps my favorite topic, the Liars Club. I first met Mike at the Liars Club back in September 2020. The Liars Club began in 1968 when a bunch of old retired firefighters would meet for coffee every Wednesday at the Training Academy on Moon Island in Quincy, Massachusetts. The stories from the glory days would take on a life of their own, tall tales, legends, and sometimes a few lies. As Mike puts it, the older we get, the better we were when we were younger. So here is episode 19 with Mike Foley. Guess, can you start off with what was your childhood like? Uh, well, I was born and brought up uh, in Dorchester. I lived in a three-decker on Dick Street. And my father was a Boston fireman. My mother was my mother, of course. And she took care of the house like the wives did back then. I had two brothers. Um, and it was just a normal childhood, I guess you'd say. It wasn't much, much different than anyone else in the neighborhood. But it was a blue-collar Dorchester neighborhood. And, and did, did you play sports growing up or? Yeah, we played baseball a lot and hockey. And, uh, you know, we played things like touch football in the street and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was good. And um, I know in your book, uh, you mentioned riding the train to bring your dad uh, some lunch because he yeah. was at the firehouse. Can you talk about like that early uh, like influence? Sure. Yeah. I, we lived right around the corner from the red line Shawmut station. And my mother would give me my father's lunch. He would work in the day painting houses and then go to work at night on a lot of times. So I would take his lunch, go to the subway, it cost a nickel. And I would take the train, let me see, four stops, maybe five stops to Andrew Square. And I walk across Andrew Square into the firehouse. And I hung around there for a while. And Usually before it got dark, he would send me back and I would walk back to Andrew with another nickel in the turnstile and go home. <laughs> it, it, it was different. It was fun. And um, you also had, or before you uh, went into the Marine Corps and before you uh, realized that you wanted to become a, a Boston firefighter, you had this interesting experience at uh, Bellflower Street. Can you oh, talk yeah. about that? Sure. Well, it was, uh, it was the 22nd of May, and I had just come from the Marine recruiter's office, and I was scheduled to take my oath the following Friday on the 29th. And I had the family car, so I drove back to the firehouse to tell my father what had happened. 
as he was a World War II Marine. And while we were there, uh, the box came in, the ladder 20 and engine 43 went out. And my father and I went to the back of the firehouse and looked through the windows and all you could see was a big giant column of black smoke. And the lieutenant on ladder 20, Jim Kennedy, ordered a second alarm. Uh, before he even got there, he could see it, you know, over the, he was going over a bridge. He could see it in, you know, the not too far away. And so I jumped in someone's car. I don't remember who it was. It was a friend of Captain Regan's. And he drove me over there. And before I left, my father handed me his helmet and his dungaree jacket to change into so I could help, I guess. And uh, <laughs> that was really funny. And just as we were pulling out, he threw a pair of shoes into me, work shoes. And as my, one of my most vivid memories is looking back out the window and seeing him standing there in his sock feet. He had taken his own shoes off and given them to me. And now I got there just a couple of minutes after the first companies, and it was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen, even since, you know, after all the years in the fire department, never saw anything quite like that. And yeah, at one point, uh, I was dragging hose for someone and I felt an enormous blast of heat on my back. So I did what you're supposed to do. I ran away. <laughs> so I was only 17, didn't know what to do. Ran down a few feet, turned back around and um, the fire had jumped the street. So it, it, that was what the big blast of heat was. And the same that when it jumped the street, it also isolated uh, the district six chief, Bob Green. He had gone past some of the buildings to see what the spread was like. And he was trapped on the other side of the fire. So he wound up staying on that end of Bellflower Street for the whole day. And the deputy who came in, came into the area that I was in and uh, they commanded from there. It was a lot of fun. I think one of the funniest parts was getting interviewed by Governor Peabody in the middle of the street. I was walking down to the coffee truck to get some coffee for my father and myself and maybe one or two others. And a woman stopped me and asked me about the fire. And I just, I didn't know what to say. Like I said, I was 17. And she turned around, she said, well, the governor would like to say hello. And I, I knew who he was, of course, but he asked me how the fire was. I don't know what to say to the governor. And he said to me, you look awful young to be a fireman. I said, well, I just came on in the class in January, I lied. And um, he just said, okay, and off I went. And fortunately, they didn't air that on the news at night. So it was just, I was happy they didn't. <laughs> and then um, we'll kind of get into your like legacy as like, uh, I know you're fourth generations of four generations of Boston Fire. But right. before we do that, um, I kind of want to just kind of chronologically walk. So from that, you go into like the Marine Corps in 1964, correct? Correct. And can you... Um, Maybe like why did you pick the Marine Corps? Did you was there another family legacy with that, or can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Well, my father was a World War II Marine, and he joined in May of 1940, which is a you know a year and a half before the war. So he was in the reserves, and oddly enough, in November of 1940, the Marine Corps called up about 5,000 reservists. He was in high school, mechanic arts high, and he was activated. So off he went, he left school and off he went and they went down to Cuba and they were practicing the, uh, I think they called them the flex exercises at the time. And General Holland Smith was the boss and they were practicing amphibious operation. And that's where they assigned him to the mortar platoon. 
And I think it was January of 1941, uh, February, that the Marine, First Marine Division was reformed. Actually, it was, I think it was formed for the first time. It was a brigade, and they made it a division. My father was assigned to 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. And uh, so he, his, one of his first battalion commanders was Chesty Puller. And there was a, you know, a lot of that going around. I mean, he's still revered the way he is. So it was kind of a foregone conclusion. My two brothers also followed us into the Marine Corps. So. And your dad, uh, did he serve in Guadalcanal? Is that correct? We, yeah, Guadalcanal, Cape Gloucester, and Peleliu. And uh, that was enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. And um, and then you what, did you have a younger brother? Uh, two. I'm I'm the oldest. I had two younger brothers. My brother Bobby, and then my brother John was the youngest. And Bobby was killed in Vietnam in '68, and my brother just died here eight years ago of occupational cancer. So, wow. Yeah. And then, um, but you also met. So it was kind of ironic that, or maybe. Your dad served under Chesty Polar, but you also met Chesty Polar. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was March of 1965. Uh, Polar's daughter, Virginia, married a guy named Bill Dabney. And Bill was one of the three lieutenants serving in the Marine barracks in Rota, Spain. And Polar came over with his wife to visit his daughter and her family, which included Bill Dabney. And we uh, all of us met him at one time or another. And I think I sent you the picture of Jesse Puller and I sitting on a bench. Yep. It's, it's, <laughs> it was unbelievable. But he proved himself to be exactly as advertised. And I'll tell you one way. They, they went around and asked if any of us knew anyone or you know, was related to anyone who may have served with him. So they brought me over and I sat down and he said, who do you know that I might know? And I said, well, my father was in your mortar platoon at New River and later on at Guadalcanal. And he said, what was his name? And I said, Bob Foley. And he did the funniest thing. He put his hand on his chin and he said, Foley, Foley. I think I remember, but I can't be sure. Well, that to me proved that he was, he was genuine. I mean, a lot of other, other different kinds of people might have said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him. Hell of a guy. But Polar didn't. He was brutally honest right up to, up to that. And here I was just a PFC with a couple of months in grade. So he uh, rose in my estimation right then. Guy was unbelievable. And he told some good stories. <laughs> uh, and when you were in the Marines, what was your, what did you enlist as? What, enlist as? I mean, like what, what was your job? Oh, infantry, like we all were. You know, 0300 was my basic, and I became 0311, which is a rifleman. And my Marine Corps career was you know, a very uneventful, except for when my brother was killed. I was on my way over to Vietnam when he was killed. And so instead of going, they made me the official escort, and I had to meet his body in Delaware or somewhere and come back with it as the official escort. And that was not well, not pleasant, so. Right. <laughs> For sure. And um and I guess we'll dive into maybe um like the legacy of the like your family with Boston Fire. So like you have your grandfather, your dad, you, and then your son. Can right. you start with your grandfather? Right. He was appointed in nineteen seventeen and retired in nineteen sixty-three. He was a district chief in South Boston. 
and kind of, I don't know whether you'd say famous, but, you know, in the, in the South Boston area, he was well known. Like a lot of those older guys, you know, they, they were just tough old people. And, and he was just well, well loved. He was revered and his nickname was Iron Mike. And uh, then my father came along in 1945. He got out of the Marine Corps on September the 2nd and was appointed to the fire department October 10th. And uh, he, so he, and he served until 1987, 42 years. And I came along in 69 until 94. And my brother, John came along in 1974, I think. And he left in 2004. So that was, so we used to kid that we were all, you know, all firemen, but my mother was the fire commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. And what uh, firehouses were, like, where's everybody at? Uh, well, my grandfather <clears throat> started, uh, so he was on engine 12 on Dudley street for a short time. And back in those days, the companies downtown were the busiest. They had the most fires and the companies out in what is now Dorchester and Roxbury were just were like farmland companies. They didn't do a whole lot. So he worked in the busy areas. He was a Lieutenant in the firehouse in, uh, Fort Hill square which he was on ladder eight. He had been a firefighter in that house on engine 25. And then he was a captain of ladder 20 in South Boston and the captain of engine two in South Boston. And uh, actually there's a story about that. He was working the night of the coconut grove. And in those days they didn't have radios. The chiefs had them, but I, I think they might've, but there was no normal radio traffic that you might hear today. And when he went to work that morning, they were working 24 on, 24 off, 84 hours a week. When he went to work that morning, he had spoke with his daughter and she said she was going to the Coconut Grove that night after the football game. So he was in the firehouse and all of a sudden, you know, the box came in, didn't think much of it. And then a third alarm came in. And of course, you know right away that it's something. So they jumped in engine two and off they went. And with no radios, you don't know what's going on. So you, you can't find out until you get there. And so when he arrived, he reported to the chief and the chief says, Mike, help with the bodies. And so my grandfather spent the next couple of hours going through looking at bodies, not knowing whether he would find his daughter. But what he didn't know was that she didn't go to the coconut grove because she was a BC fan, I guess, and they lost the football game, so they didn't celebrate. But he didn't know that at the time. Huh. I, I can't imagine what that was like. You know? Right. <laughs> and then my father came on in 1945. And um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, can we just go, can you give some like context of what the Coconut Grove fire, like what, when that happened, what happened? It was November 28, 1942, and I think to this day, it's the largest loss of life in any one venue like that, 492, I believe. It was a, basically a flash fire that killed a lot of people, and uh, it, the fire itself was over pretty quick, but they had issues with the, uh, with the escape routes. A lot of the escape doors were chained shut, and there was no... Um, no door beside the revolving door that you used to come in. I mean, nowadays when you go into a building, you see uh, doors beside a revolving door. They, that came about after the coconut grove because of what happened there. And uh, so they had bodies piled up there and, and they were, it was just, I can't imagine what it was like. 
and the fire started downstairs in the Melody Lounge. And I think there must have been 150 or 200 dead down there. Some of them were just, there was one, they found a woman's body and she was sitting at the bar with her hand on her drink, dead. And, and I wow. guess it was just whether the, the, the fire was just sucked all the oxygen out of the air or whatever it was. Yeah, it was really, really, uh, I guess, kind of an eerie, almost a twilight zone kind of thing, you know? <laughs> right. It was pretty bad. And then um, what firehouse was your dad at? I started off in Andrew Square, made lieutenant and went to Charlestown for 10 weeks. And then he went to Ladder 7 on Meeting House Hill in Dorchester. He retired from there. And like I said, 1987. So he spent 21 years in each location with 10 weeks in the middle <laughs> taken out. So, and then you went what you went to Engine 42, correct? Correct. That's where I was assigned that I was transferred to uh, then from, to Engine 24. And I was on Ladder 23 as well. You know, it was crazy because at the time I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about the different facets of the job. So I spent some time on busy ladder trucks, busy engines. And for a while, I was on ladder 15 over in the back bay because it was a different division, district, different district, different buildings. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. And, uh, but I kind of liked division two with the three deckers. That was kind of where I, <laughs> I enjoyed the most. And for those who don't know much about like the fire service, can you explain the difference between like a ladder truck or an engine um, sure. rescue squad, et cetera? Well, the ladder company, they have the ladders and the tools, and their job is essentially to search for uh, victims or people and ventilate, which allows the engine company. The engine basic job is to put water on the fire, put as much water between you and the people you're sworn to protect as possible, as quickly as possible. They work very well together, but the ladder companies, by breaking windows and opening up a roof, it sounds like they're just a wrecking crew. But all of that eliminates or lets a lot of the smoke and hot gases escape, which only does one thing. It speeds the attack. It lets the firemen on the engine get in and do their jobs uh, more quickly and more effectively. So it's really it's kind of interesting. They work so well together, but they're two completely opposite functions. But in the rescue, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what they do. I, I guess they used to be just a manpower company. And uh, in later years, you know, they, they would go to a fire and they would do whatever the chief needed. They could do ladder company work or engine work if they needed to. They were kind of the jack of all trades. A lot of good guys there too. A lot of them. And I know, and I don't know if it's like a saying, but, or if I just read it in your book, but like ladders, throw ladders and then engine run lines. That's correct. Right. Oh, yeah, that, that's pretty much what it is. And the funny thing is Boston has a reputation for its ladder work, as they say. And I don't know where it originated, but what it means is first, first ladder companies, they always ladder the building. First, they throw ladders to the second floor, to the set third floor. And the idea behind it is to give an engine man an escape route if he needs one or to help getting people out, I guess. But it's, it's just something they, I don't know how much they do of it now these days, but they certainly did. They, you know, you'd go to a fire and you'd see ladders up everywhere. And it was kind of really kind of interesting. There's a lot of really cool photos out there about the ladder work. There really are. 
And I know there's like a lot of Boston specific history and like some terms that I kind of want to go over, sure. but um, I guess we'll start with, or can you just talk about like the fire alarm boxes and like their purpose and th- th- how they're prevalent still today, sort of? Well, <clears throat> the fire boxes, they, they were, uh, Boston is the first fire alarm office in the world to function as, as it does. And I'm not sure about the mechanics of them or the, the uh, electrical, electrical stuff that goes along with it. I don't know. But th- they, um, they provide a means of communicating with the fire department when there is no power. So if, if Boston suddenly went dark, the fireboxes will still work. And that's kind of the reason they're still there. There's been a, a move over the last, well, many, many years to get rid of them because, well, everybody has a phone and now everybody has a cell phone and all that, but they leave them there for that very purpose. And uh, yeah, it's, I think it was 1852, somewhere around there, they, they installed the system and it still works. I think there's probably close to 3000 fireboxes still on the streets. And yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, some places like maybe some of the more recent, like say Albuquerque, for example, which is laid out in grids. Everything is very square. I don't think there's any fireboxes there at all. They just, you know, use the telephone. That's what they do. But and I know we kind of talked about this before, but no one really knows where like um, why Boston firefighters are called Jakes. But there's uh, some working theories. Well, yeah, the 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 main one is that there was uh, <clears throat> in order to open up an old firebox, you had to have a key. And everything was done by telegraph in those days. So inside each firebox, well, it's still there actually. Inside each firebox was a uh, telegrapher's key. And that's the way the old chiefs would order additional alarms when there was no radio. They would just tap them out. Well, if a citizen wanted to report a fire, they had to get the key. And usually it was located in a business or something very, very close. And it was called a J key. And the legend is that it was eventually shortened to Jake. And I guess there's other, other explanations, but I don't know. I don't think anyone knows for sure. That's like the most widely one I've heard. I know that yeah, for that, sure. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And another one was, um, you know, some cities call uh, the people that chase fires, fire buffs, but Boston has an own, their own unique term for that. And there's some people that yeah, you wrote about, which are, really uh interesting that i kind of want to talk about oh yeah they're called sparks and the number one spark actually just died a year or so ago was elliot bellin and he had fire records i mean the man was incredible he he had chief that used to call him up after a fire and say okay elliot what did the companies do and he would say okay engine 24 they ran 150 feet of this size line from this pump that was located here into that building, <laughs> he, he just, he was a, an encyclopedia of information. And uh, there, yeah, there was, a, there was a few others that uh, set buildings on fire. <laughs> there was, yeah, there was a little, they were interesting people, some of them. But Elliot I think, was probably the crown prince of all. Right. And is that like still, um, do people still do that, like chase fires, if you chase the fire trucks, or is that more like a something that happened like earlier? You know, I don't know because I don't do it. I mean, uh, but I, I know that every now and again, you know, someone will show up on Facebook or one of the other uh, websites with 
current photographs and or videos. But a lot of them are taking them with their phone. So I guess it's people across the street from the fire that, that post the pictures. I don't know. But I, I imagine there's still some that, that ride around hoping something will happen. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and there was another one I wanted to ask about. It's just sort of like um, how fire engines, uh, they used to have like open cabin and the guys would ride on the back and stuff. Yeah. But then eventually because of some riots, they had to like do some modifications. Correct. Yeah. They, uh, the riots were in June of 67. And again, in April, I think of 68, that was when Martin Luther King was, was killed. And so, but what, what they did was they brought a lot of the open cab fire engines that that's all they had in those days. They brought them into the shop and with angle iron and plexiglass, they were able to fashion uh, coverings for the officer and driver in a kind of a little box they put on the back step to protect the firemen who were riding there. And on the ladder trucks, they put little like telephone booths on the side of the ladder truck. It's kind of funny. <laughs> and then in 68, 1968, Ward LaFrance provided the city with their first cab over fire engines with the jump seats. And you weren't supposed to ride on the back step. A lot of us still did. And then eventually it just went away and they come out with the crew cabs, I think in 1976. And of course you could fit everybody inside those. I also wanted to go into like what your book is about or just what your career, like what the, those years that were called the war years. Correct. You kind of um, go into why it was called that and just more detail about that. Sure. Well, I, the war years are loosely defined as uh, a 21 year period of unprecedented fire activity. And it wasn't just in Boston. It was around the country. New York had it probably Philly, Chicago, and it was just a time, but for Boston, we averaged a major fire every 13 and a half or 14 hours for 21 straight years. Now, a major fire in my description is anytime three engine companies and two ladder companies work at a fire or more. And it was, uh, I've told people it was a lot more fun going to the fires than it was writing about them. Yeah, it was, uh, it was just a time that'll never happen again. There was a lot of different reasons for it, I suppose. And, you know, there were social issues involved that we never really bothered with much. We didn't care. I mean, we just went to the fires as they happened. And now uh, it was a lot. It was, a, it was a, lot of, a lot of work. It really was. It was a lot of great guys that worked through the entire process. And it was, wow. It's kind of a badge of honor these days, you know. I was there. Oh, I wish I was there. I was too young. <laughs> All this. So, but it was it was a good time to be a Boston fireman. That's for sure. And what were some of these? Were some of them like structural, like the buildings, or like the reasons why there was so much fires? Or well, I, I yeah, they were all buildings, you know, ninety nine percent. There was the occasional ship fire or that kind of thing. But yeah, they were. And bridges, we burned down a couple of bridges. And I never understood how a bridge could burn down, but they do. <laughs> and there was I, I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a couple of times, uh, like the 4th Street Bridge in South Boston burned down. And there was another bridge over that way. I forget where it was, but yeah, but mostly they were buildings. And the fire incidents were roughly uh, two thirds of the fires happened in the wooden area of the city, which is Dorchester, Roxbury. West you know, Rosendale, High Park, West Rockby. And the other one third was on the in-town side, which would include the South End. 
and it also included East Boston and South Boston. But I'd say that probably of all the fires, probably 80% of them happened in wooden buildings and because uh, they, they spread quickly. Although the fires in the big brick buildings were oftentimes worse because the, the building holds the heat more where the, the wooden building, you know, the fire can burn through the wall and it doesn't happen in a brick building. So each, each, each fire had its unique um, challenges, I'd say. In the societal issues, do you, uh, like, what would that be? Like, what would you classify that as? Like as, fire arsonists or? Oh, well, <clears throat> I, I suppose there were a lot uh, of arson fires, but I think the other thing, um, to, I mean, we have smoke detectors today. So the smoke detectors, while they don't prevent fires, they give early warning. And early warning is, is an advantage to get out of the building, but it's also... Uh, it tells someone that they might be able to put the fire out themselves. And I suppose a lot of that happens. But back then, uh, it, there was a lot of vandalism. And so the vandalism translated into arson. And I used to kid, I actually kidded the fire commissioner once. I said the Arabs did more to stop arson in Boston than the arson squad when they raised the price of crude oil back in the 70s during the energy crisis. <laughs> Because you used to be able to burn down a three-decker for 75 cents. <laughs> but not anymore now would be two or three bucks, and no one was going to spend that money on burning down a house. But I think there were other issues involved as well. Uh, there was a rumor going around that anytime there was a demolition scheduled, let's say they were going to tear down a three-decker for 2000 bucks. Anytime there was a fire in that, it was kind of a rider clause in the contract. If there was a fire, then the amount of automatically doubled to 4,000. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know that when you were driving to work, especially in the night, to, to go to a night tour, and if you saw cranes up in your area, in your neighborhood, you say, well, that's a good possibility we'll be down there for a fire tonight. And, uh, it, and, and many times it was exactly that. It, it was. So whether the construction guys were doing it, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but we all had our suspicions. Right. And I also wanted to kind of go into like some of the gear that you guys had. I mean, compared to today, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> can you just kind of go into that? Yeah, the gear we had was, well, no gear to say that. Uh, we had, everybody wore a helmet. And depending on when it was, you wore a dungaree jacket or one with a liner or without a liner. And so you'd throw a fire coat on, especially cold weather, or if you were going to be doing what we call a surround and drown, where you're going to sit outside and pump water through windows of buildings and stuff like that. But it was, uh, I, I've told the story before that I, I think it was one of my first Saturday nights working. I was still in drill school and we had to go to the firehouse on Saturday and we had a fire somewhere. I don't remember where. And there was an old time chief. And he, I walked by him and he, and he yelled, hey, you. And I turned around, you know, it's a chief, you know, I'm, I'm terrified. I've been on the job 15 minutes and the chief's yelling at me. He said, what, what are those? What are you wearing gloves? I, I said, I didn't know what to say. He says, you look stupid. <laughs> and uh, so I took my gloves off. I mean, you don't want to look stupid in front of the chief, of course. But yeah, they, they were the, the old time guys, they were. Remember my grandfather told me to uh, in the cold, have a bottle of olive oil in your locker. Olive oil, okay. 
He said, well, when it gets cold out, you can put the olive oil and rub it on your ears and it'll keep them warmer. It'll keep them from freezing. And I said something. I said, well, we have ear flaps inside the helmets. He says, what? Ear flaps? <laughs> he was incredulous. But it was, it was kind of funny. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, it, it was kind of a swashbuckler attitude back then. I mean, guys went to fires wearing CYO bowling jackets. <laughs> it was comical. It really was. <laughs> But in, I think it was 71 or 72, the fire commissioner decided he wanted us to look more professional. So he got rid of the dungarees and the chambray shirts and he gave us the permanent press blue uniforms you know, that we wore for a long time. And those have gone by the wayside now with the new, the new bunker gear. I've never worn the bunker gear, so I don't know. But I guess it's uh, pretty heavy. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> And for if someone doesn't know what bunker gear is, can you explain what that is? Well, it's I, I don't really know. I mean, it's a it's um, well, it's, it's treated. Uh, I think it's flame resistant and heat resistant, and I and it obviously keeps the fireman dry. But it's big and bulky, and this giant they call them bunker pants, and a giant coat you have to wear. Uh, we don't wear the same kind of boots we used to wear that, you know, that would, when they were up, they would be all the way up to the middle of your thigh. Now, I guess they're shorter. And uh, so I don't really know much about it, except that actually these days, there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of controversy over whether the treating, the fabric that's been treated that they use to make the bunker gear is causing cancer in firefighters. There's a couple of lawsuits been filed and, uh, the lady that's the spearhead behind it, I know very well, nice lady, her name is Diane Carter. And uh, she's, uh, she's just relentless on this subject. Her husband was a Worcester fireman and he got cancer and had to retire. And I guess he's, he's okay, but it's the whole, um, the whole issue has come to the forefront. And of course, it's kind of like the Aaron Brockovich movie. I'm sure you remember that with Julia Roberts and they were trying to prove that a certain company was poisoning the water and knew about it and did nothing. Well, I guess this is kind of the same thing that's going on. I don't know much about it beyond that, but I know if Diane is onto something like that, she's like a dog on a shin bone. Yeah. So I, there's something there for sure. I'm pretty, I, I would think. But like yeah. Said, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something that uh, more people should be aware of. Cause I don't think a lot of people outside of the fire service at least are so. Well, you're absolutely right. And cancer among firefighters, uh, I, I, this is a stunning statistic that one child out of every 10,800 families will get cancer. One child out of every 400 firefighter families will get cancer. And that translates into the firefighters' children are 27 times more likely to get cancer than non-firefighter families. And whether the firemen are bringing home the, the cancer things from their fire gear or when kids go into the firehouse, uh, what's the first thing you see in a picture? Oh, put daddy's helmet on, put mommy's coat on or whatever. And they're, they're being exposed to this. So, like I said, there's a lot to be, a lot will come out of it soon, I, I hope, and it'll be addressed. But it's just an awful thing. It's too bad. And, you know, they, cause they were supposed to, I mean, the people that are protecting them these days, you know, being forced to wear this. And I think what puzzles me most is if this is even an issue, I mean, if there was, if there was an issue that said 
well, this particular brand of fire engine might cause more accidents. Well, the city would stop buying, I would think, because they would have something to replace it with. But because they don't with the with the bunker gear, I, I don't know what they what they should do or why they haven't done more. But that's for other people to decide. So. I appreciate you sharing that because I wasn't before we spoke, I wasn't aware that was an issue. But now hopefully if people listen to this or if we keep sharing that, more people will be aware of it and maybe something will be done about it. Well, uh, that's true. And I'll, 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 in a bit of shameless self-promotion, uh, we're waiting for a federal nonprofit approval uh, for a, a foundation I've started called Firefighters Versus Cancer. And the mission is to, to become a nonprofit and to conduct early detection seminars across the country over a three-year period. And our attitude is, it's not that we don't care, but it doesn't make any difference to us where the cancer comes from, whether it comes from the gear, whether it comes from your own individual lifestyle. That's not our issue. Our issue is, is to help you detect it early enough to where it's eminently treatable and conquerable, if you will. I mean, my own brother, he died of it and he didn't know anything about it. He didn't know he had cancer until it was too late. And that's what we're hoping to, to attack. So we don't, well, I'm very sympathetic to Diane's cause and I, I, I believe in it. Uh, it's not something we are involved in. Ours is just, uh, you know, the early detection idea, which, and no one can be opposed to that. No one with a no sane person anyway could be opposed to that. I don't think. <laughs> oh. Right. And did you recently start this, uh, like your foundation? Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> the paperwork's all been done. We're approved in Massachusetts, but actually uh, we're waiting now for the feds. And it's been five months within the past couple of days that we're waiting. And I've been told that that it takes around that amount of time. And so when we get the approval, we're ready to hit the ground running. We have some financing set up and we have some uh, uh, some interesting celebrities that are going to support us and bring attention to this. But like I said, right now, it's just a waiting game. It's frustrating, but when it happens, uh, hopefully it's literally going to explode and uh, everybody's going to be aware of it. Then that's what we're hoping. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, I wasn't aware of this, but I'm really happy that you're happy to hear that you're behind this. And, uh, you know, I think that's just really awesome. It's going to help a lot of people. Well, it is. And the funny thing is, uh, there's four of us involved in it. Mike Murphy and Newton Feynman, Joe Conforti. Joe is a uh, has a master's degree in, from Emerson in uh, in uh, movie. He's a he's a movie guy, movie and podcast producer, director. And third guy, the last guy to join us is uh, Paul Carey, retired district chief recently. And uh, he's a cancer survivor. And he's also an instructor, has been teaching for years and years. And I think the four of us together will be able to bring a different level of, uh, of expertise to the whole process. We're planning on filming or videotaping all of the, all of the uh, seminars or synopsis symposiums rather that we that we hold and then we'll make them available on the website and um, and Paul's going to be in charge of the programs because that's what he does uh, Joe himself is a former marine fighter pilot and also he was a 30-year pilot for Continental and United he told me something very very interesting firefighters I think are number one of the number the number one occupation for occupational cancer 
airline pilots are really close behind. They might be number two or three. And I, I didn't understand. And he said, well, I had cancer in my left ear. Okay. What's, I mean, why the left ear? He said, the pilot sits in the left-hand seat. The co-pilot sits in the right-hand seat. They get cancer in their right ear. And he said, the reason for it is when you're flying, you get as much radiation on a, on a flight from Boston to LA as you do going through a, a GI series in the hospital. He said, the elevation, 30, 35,000 feet, whatever it is, he said, that's where it's coming from. So in, in his case, we might be able to, to encompass other occupations as well, which would be good, which I think would be awesome. So once again, it all depends on the feds to send us that approval and we'll be off and running. And now uh, we're not going to exclude anyone. I mean, it's not going to be just for firefighters. If the carpenters want to get in on it, fine. You know, we, we just, it's early detection for anyone and everyone that wants it. Even civilians, I don't care who comes to the symposiums. <laughs> as long as they get the information. And interestingly, we, uh, a former Boston firefighter named Mike Hamrock, I think he probably worked maybe 10 years or so, but while he was on the fire department, he was going through medical school became a doctor, quit the fire department, has a practice over in Newton or uh, Brighton, maybe, I, I forget, Chestnut Hill, whatever. And he was kind of the pioneer behind this early detection concept with the Boston Fireman. So he's, uh, he'll, hopefully he'll be on one of our advisory boards or whatever. And we have another lady we're talking to. She's the uh, a radia a radiation oncologist, I guess, from the Mass General. And uh, she was a, an, early, an early detection proponent. And she became one because she suggested her father get tested. And he did, and he had cancer. But it was early enough, like a minimally beginning stage one. And they were able to take care of it. And so so that she has a lot invested in this, you know, in time and background and, and expertise. So it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. I agree. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't wait for you to get federally approved and get it off the ground. I will definitely support that. Um, one of the things I wanted to go back just, just briefly back is, um, I don't know if, uh, like, I don't think we talked about this, but I'm just curious. Uh, like, did you have, when you were at the firehouse, did you have like a firehouse chef or a cook or how'd you guys do your meals? And you can, can you kind of go into that? Sure. Uh, the, the, uh, the concept of the idea of meals in the firehouse is relatively new. Uh, the first, probably, I'd, yeah, almost all of my time, most everyone just brown bagged it. Occasionally, they would send out, everybody would send out for subs or whatever. But the actual cooking, you know, with the pots and pans and the stove and the whole thing, that didn't come along until later. And I know now they do it everywhere in every firehouse, but we never did much of it. And it was funny because you'd send out for subs and a guy would order, you know, an Italian sub with everything on it and a tab. And a tab. Do you know what that was? Probably not. No. Tab was the original Diet Coke, I think. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, so th there was a lot of that. Guys just brought their own stuff from home. Some of them brought in stuff to cook, but there was never, I mean, they might have one or two a year, you know, like at, around Thanksgiving or whatever, but not, not, it, there was no. I think the first chef I ever heard about was a guy named Dan McHugh. He worked on Engine 7 down in, on Columbus Avenue. And I, if my information is correct, he was the executive chef at the Copley Plaza Hotel. 
Wow. Well, here's a guy, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, imagine him being on your group. Yeah. What's ah, Dan will figure it out. We don't care. Because whatever it is, it's going to be great. But I, I, I think he was. I, I, I don't know for sure, but that's what, the story I heard a long time ago. Yeah, we didn't eat in the firehouse that much, except what we brought. And one funny story, a guy brought a bologna sandwich in one day from home and was kind of the Oscar Mayer bologna that comes in the, in the container. And <laughs> there's a, a piece of paper that goes in to tell you what's inside. And the piece of paper shows a picture of bologna. The wife, I guess she was just tired, put the picture, the paper picture of the bologna in the bologna sandwich with it. So <laughs> that was a little odd. Funny though. Right. And um and just like to like, do you guys have like a Dalmatian or a fire dog in your firehouse no, by chance? I never did. There was a couple of firehouses that did uh on Dudley Street, they had a dog named Thumper. And at Engine 21 on Columbia Road, they had a, I think it was a Dalmatian name, named Stewie. Other than that, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that they were Dalmatians. Though. Thumper was not. He was like a street dog that just wandered in and he kept coming back because we fed him. But he was an ornery little thing too, I'll tell you. But yeah, that's the, that's the only ones I've ever known. And uh, can you maybe share like a firehouse prank that comes to mind? Oh boy, this oh, there's like a million. <laughs> um, I think one of the funniest ones was we had a, a captain who had a, a very weak stomach, and it wasn't anything he shared really well. It, he was sitting at the kitchen table eating his lunch, and one of the guys came. This is all pre-planned, obviously. One of the guys came in. Now, in the corner of the kitchen, around of different places of the firehouse. They had those little tiny silver ashtrays, the paper ones you might see at a function, and they would put rat poison in it. Well, rat poison looks a lot like oatmeal. So this guy came in the, in the kitchen and he picked it up. He says, I wonder what the hell this stuff tastes like. So the captain's looking at him like, what are you talking about? And the guy takes the, the rat poison that's actually oatmeal and puts it in his mouth and starts to chew. And the captain almost passed out. <laughs> <laughs> he ran out of the kitchen, went into the bathroom on the first floor that was supposed to, you know, he was going to throw up. I guess he did too. But <laughs> there were other ones. I mean, yeah, I, what other, the one, another one, a guy, um, they came down from at seven o'clock in the morning. You know, they had been working all night. And one of the guys said to one of his friends, geez, are you hungry? He goes, oh yeah, I'm starving at that. He said, well, I left a sandwich in the refrigerator that's in that brown bag. You can have it if you want. And so the guy said, oh, really, really? Okay, so he pulled it out. He's eating it up. And the captain came back in. He had come in and gone up and changed. He'd come back in. He's sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee. And he's looking at the guy across from him. He says, where the hell did you get that sandwich? He says, well, Eddie gave it to me. Well, it was the captain's lunch. That the <laughs> But the perpetrator, by, the t by that time, he had got up and he left and he, he took off. He was hiding in the firehouse and the captain screaming at him. And, oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, those are all. Uh, there's, and there's a bunch more in the book. And we keep yep. saying the book, but can you say that, um, that, that you have two books, but can you say the title? Right. Well, Busy as Hell 
And the next title took an awful lot of thinking and contemplating, busy as hell, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really very original. Huh? But anyway, it was a lot of fun to do them. And I've got, you know, nice replies about them. And a couple of guys have called me and says, hey, that's me you're talking about. I said, yeah, I know. I know it's you. I was there, too. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun to do them. And uh, one of the last, or before we get into uh, the Liars Club, which was uh, something that I really enjoyed going to, I wanted to ask yeah. you about some mentors of you that, you know, people that you looked up to that maybe molded you in the fire service or um, just people that, you know, you tried to emulate. Well, I, we were very, very fortunate, I believe, and I know there's a lot of guys that share this opinion. We had terrific fire officers. And in those days, uh, the, like I came on 1969. So a lot of those guys that were officers, captains and chiefs, uh, had, they were World War II or Korean War veterans. So they had a lot of experience. I mean, where one lieutenant might've been in charge of, you know, a, a company of 150 guys uh, was now in charge of four guys on his, and he, it was easy for him to be a great boss. But I, I think the number one guy, without any questions at all, was Jack Force. Jack was the, the epitome of, the, of a, he was my favorite lieutenant, my favorite captain, my favorite fireman. The guy was just, he was perfect. And, and there's a lot of people that share that opinion about him. He was very, he was very knowledgeable, but he was quiet and very, very, very helpful. He would teach, he'd pull you aside and say, now the next time you go in here, look over there and see if that's going on. And you'd, you'd learn an awful lot. Yeah, Jack passed away. Uh, it was uh, Christmas Eve in 2020. And I miss him all the time. He was just a terrific guy. We were fortunate enough to get to connect later on when he was in his 90s. And uh, it was a lot, of, a lot of good times thinking about the old days. But Jack was the best. No question about it. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, I guess... Yeah, I guess we'll go into the Liars Club. So a little background. Um, in I think it was in September 2020, I uh, I wrote a story about a friend of ours or a friend of your or just I don't really know him too well, but Ed yeah. Loader, Eddie, yeah. <laughs> crazy Eddie, <laughs> and he invited me to uh, the Liars Club, and wow. that's every Wednesday at Moon Island. Um, cool. You guys meet for coffee. Can you kind of go into maybe uh, how that started or just kind of explain what the Liars Club is? Well, it, it started uh, in 1968 and we just they had their 50th anniversary, obviously, in 2018. So but I don't know really how it started or there was not very many of them, but they used to go down to Moon Island, which is the training academy, as you know. And they would sit up in the kitchen and just talk about the old days. And, you know, you know, I was there. Oh, I don't remember that. And, you know, as the, the older they got, the bigger the fires became that they had gone to. And I'll tell you a funny story about that in a minute. But, yeah, it's, it started with a few and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And eventually they moved it into that single wide trailer that you were in that day. Because now, it, I mean, you get probably 20 or 30 guys there on an average every Wednesday. Sometimes it's a little less, sometimes a little more, but it's, it's pretty steady flow. And uh, the story I'll tell you, there was two guys, a bunch of them, like maybe 10 on either side of the same table. And one guy's talking across. He says, oh yeah, I remember that fire we went to. And 
You know, there were people jumping out the windows and the fire was coming out every window and blah, blah, blah. And a guy across the table said, are you talking about that fire on St. Patrick's Day that we had? He goes, yeah, 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 that's the one. He said, well, that was one room on the first floor. Nobody was jumping. He said, <laughs> And so anyway, everyone laughed because, like I said, the fires get bigger the further away you get from them, you know. And the older we get, the better we were when we were younger. That's another rule. So. <laughs> <laughs> but Eddie Loader, I'll tell you, Eddie Loader was, is just an amazing piece of work. He's just a kind of an unassuming guy, you know, no bravado, no crap, no BS, just, just a really, really, really terrific fireman. It was a pleasure to work with him. It really was. He was a good guy. <laughs> Yep, and if any if uh, you're a listener and you're interested in hearing more about uh, Ed Loader, I did a I wrote an article and pretty much did like his uh, all the rescues that he was awarded like a medal for mostly. So like the there was one uh, the Boston Hospital City Rescue where he like talked a jumper down and he caught the guy with his yep. fingertips like you see it in a movie and you're like how did yeah. he do that like that's just too unbelievable and uh there were a few that we didn't uh i didn't write about but those were mostly uh like water rescues but still really cool well the one he one at the i think it was the ritz carlton downtown the one he repelled from above and bounced off the wall and then landed in the right window and there was a woman in the window and he kicked her right in the chest with both feet and knocked her back into the room <laughs> <laughs> And he says, well, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, though. Here I am hanging up five or six floors off the street. <laughs> She's fine, but I'm not. <laughs> but, yeah, that's Eddie. Eddie is a terrific guy. <laughs> yeah, and he was yelling at the Boston cops to drag him in because he was just dangling there in the window. I know. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. Do you still go to the Liars Club? I haven't been for a while. Uh, actually, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's still pretty much the same. The guy that runs it, Leo Sullivan, uh, is almost 90 years old. And every Wednesday, he lives nearby, which is good. But every Wednesday, he's down there giving out coffee and talking about the old days. And it's really, really a lot of fun. It is. It's good. I also have a picture of uh, the Liars Club book, which is pretty cool. It's kind of like a cool little... Uh, I, get, I think they recently wrote it up but it just says like larry's club on the front in uh like chalk and then it has like inside it uh <laughs> it's like yeah, the history good. behind it so yeah yeah it's good yeah it's a lot of fun and uh like i said the older we get the better we were when we were younger that's the <laughs> <laughs> oh man and if anybody wants to find or pick up your books or um yeah if they want to pick up your books where can they find them uh, gee, uh, what's that company? Uh, Amazon. Amazon. That's it. Yeah, I knew, I knew you'd remember. <laughs> yeah, and it's busy as hell. I got it right here. Actually, that's the first one, and then the second one. If the I, big boy. <laughs> this 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 sucker weighs three pounds. But it's, I'll put it in front of my face. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this covers a lot of a lot of good stuff. What I wanted to do was write the definitive history of that time period. But from my perspective and also the perspective of the guys that did it, I mean, it, it, there's no beginning, middle or end of either of the books. You can pick them up and read. Some of the stories are only a page and a half or two pages long. Some of them are longer. But it's a lot of fun because it, this is about the, 
about the people that did it. And maybe some people write books about, you know, all the fires they went to. Well, a few of them I went to, but a lot of them I didn't. And it's uh, kind of just a, a nice tribute to the people that actually wrote on the fire engines and did the work. So it's not about me. It's about them. <laughs> but there's also a lot of funny stories in there, too. I mean, I I, I picked up your when we first met. Uh, actually, no, I think it was the second time I have your book here. OK. Yay. But <laughs> it was the second time we met. We were in uh, Whitman, Massachusetts, and just a fun fact for since this is a history podcast, the uh, we, the parking lot of where that Wendy's that we were in, yep, it used to be where the Toll House in uh, Cookie, where the chocolate chip cookie was invented. I think That's it got right. burnt That's down. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but I uh, so you gave me a signed copy of your book, and that's uh, awesome. So I just okay. uh, really appreciate that. And uh, if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Boston Fire and the guys who were there and experienced it, pick up Mike's book. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, is anything? Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think would be important to mention? Um, hmm. Not offhand. I think you covered it. Just that that the the people that did the work uh, that there was it was a. Um, there's a lot over the past several years has been a lot of uh, talk about the greatest firemen in Boston's history and all that. And it's normally uh, addressed to one particular fireman who I won't name, but he was not only not the best fireman ever, there were times when he wasn't even the best fireman on his own group, let alone the entire history of the Boston fire department. But it was just about all the people that did the work, the guys that went there every day. And I say guys because it ended before the first woman, Patty Keneally, was appointed to the job. So it was all guys. And they were just, uh, they deserve a loud round of applause and a hand salute and everything else because they did it. And um, I was with them at some of them, but a lot of them, they did them without me. (laughs) Yeah, that would be about it. I I think it's, uh, you know, it's nice to be remembered this way. But it's also nice for those guys to be remembered because they're the ones that did it. But that's also a good point because sometimes like when you're looking back in history, there's only there's there's like people that get hand selected for some reason, maybe because they did something heroic or maybe because they were maybe famous. But then there are all these other people who don't get the credit. So I think that's a really good point to bring up. Well, thank you. I'm glad. And, And that's what I intended. There's sections in there for the medal winners and guys that did extraordinary things. But then there's the rank and file guy that just went, put the fire out, went home and then came back a couple of days later and did it again. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Good. Well, awesome. I appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on my podcast. And uh, if I have any more questions about Boston fire, I know who to ask. So. (laughs) All right. All right, Matt. Thank you very much.